is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. I'm not a Jimmy Carter fan. I can I, imagine. I can just tell you that right now. He could have been a, a, a great humanitarian as a president, but he's not my, I'm not a fan of Jimmy Carter. What can I say? I still remember the feeling to this day. It, it, it does sit on you. I mean, it stays with you. It's not, it's not um, easy to forget. Our next guest was a recipient of the United States Congressional Gold Medal. Since the American Revolution, Congress has commissioned gold medals as its highest expression for national appreciation for distinguished achievements and contributions. In 1980, this honor went to more than 450 Olympic athletes, all of which would have traded that medal for a chance to perform at the world's most prestigious sporting event. Today, we will hear the story of an athlete who solidified his position to represent his country, but was unable to fulfill his dream because of political turmoil that led to a U.S. boycott of the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. His story of motivation and inspiration has made a lifelong impact on all of those around him. Please welcome our special guest, who I consider not only a mentor, but my senpai and my good friend, 1980 Olympian, Keith Nakasone. Keith Nakasone, welcome to JudoCast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining me today. It's an honor, Chuck. Thank you very much for even asking me to be on a podcast. Man, I've been uh, wanting to do this for a long time. I think that uh, you have an amazing story that a lot of people don't know. And I think that um, those of us that do know your story know that it's one that could be told and it, and it should be told. So uh, it's a pleasure having you on here. I think we're going to have a good time. And uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to learning a lot about uh, your upbringing and the judo knowledge that you possess and everything that, uh, that you've experienced in the last, you know, 40 years of judo. <laughs> Don't give away my age, Chuck. All right. We'll yeah. keep, we'll keep that a secret right now. So, um, how old were you when you started judo? So when I started judo, um, let's see, 12, I think it was 12 years old when I first started judo. And, um, do you remember the name of your first sensei? Yes, I do. It's, it's his name was Fukushima. Mr. Fukushima, Sensei Fukushima. And, and where is this that you did judo? This was in Okinawa, Japan. That's where I was born and raised. Um, I think some people think I'm from Hawaii, but that's not correct. I'm from Okinawa, Japan. So you uh, were born and raised in Okinawa, and you started judo at 12 years old. Was it something that, I, obviously, your whole family must be judo players, right? Nope. Nope. Wrong. <laughs> actually, actually, you know, I had a um, twin brother. He and I were, were just, the, I would say, the most rambunctious two kids you'd ever find. So judo was something that my father decided, decided to put us in. Uh, I used to play a lot of baseball, but once he found judo, my father learned about judo. That's when he put my brother and I in. So in the beginning, you're practicing judo. Was, was dad making you guys practice at home as well? Oh, yeah, a little bit, just a little bit. He was actually wanted to let the sensei teach us, you know, the, the fundamentals, but he would have his, our conversations, as you would say, after practice, if we, at least if we're not training hard enough. 
For sure. That's a balance that I'm you know, looking for now as well. I have three boys that we, we talked about this before, but they, they do judo and I try to keep it at the dojo. You know, we, we talk at home, we, we have short conversations, but I try to keep it, uh, you know, a little bit separate, you know, the home life versus the judo life. But, you know, growing up with brothers and having that competitive environment is, is big for sport. It is. It is. My brother and I were always competitive, you know, and being a twin, you're, you're never lonely. So you have partners all the time, three boys in your family, never lonely, but there's going to be competition. Obviously that, that just comes with the territory. So you and your brother being twins, I mean, were you guys, how about size wise? Were you guys like right on? Yep. We were the same weight, same height, you know, um, we are identical. So as you can see, you know, everything's the same. Yeah. I actually, my best friends growing up were twins. They weren't judo players, but they did, uh, you know, all kinds of different sports and, you know, watching the two of those guys compete with each other, no matter what the situation, when you have twins, I mean, I just, I, I grew up around it and those guys were, those guys were battling it out for everything. So I can only imagine the battles that were ensuing in the Nakasone household. Yes. Yes. That, that, as twins, you're always going to have that competition. Uh, your parents always hope that, that you will, you're, you'll love your brother. But during the whole time from when we were very young till actually till even into high school, the, very competitive, academically as well as physically. You know, I, I lost out on the academic side, but, you know. Hey, well, <laughs> you, you continued your, your judo career, so it all, it all played out. But um, so in the beginning, you're 12 years old and you're, you're doing judo. And, um, for me, when I was a kid, it was, you know, judo was, I, I call it recreational. I trained hard, but I was really only doing judo a couple of days a week. But from what I understand in Okinawa, things were a little different. Yes. A little fanatic, you know, it's, it is the old, where it, it's a def, different generation. Um, it's, it's old school judo and, and mainly, um, the style all represents the, the Japanese style of judo, the stand-up judo and the newaza as well as the tachiwaza, but the training was so, so difficult. It was. Every day, every day training, more than a couple of hours, and, and it, it usually was in the evening, you know, in the evening till late in the evening. So did you ever have conversations with your dad with, like, what drew him to judo, or why is it that he decided to put you into judo? Yes. Yeah. He, I, I, matter of fact, I asked, that was one of the first questions I asked my father, why, why judo? I mean, we love baseball. We don't want to do judo, we want to play baseball. But he said, if you look at the sport of judo, and this is after we went to a couple of practices and we came back, so we had a taste. So he had said that if you look at judo, it's, it's, it's a lot like life. You know what I mean? You're on that mat by yourself. Nobody can help you. You're competing against something that you want to uh, be successful and and win, win and, and sports winning. But you want you it teaches you that you're by yourself in life and you got to struggle to to make good, do well, right? And then if you win, it's it's a reward. If you lose, you you need to be able to handle that as well, you know. But it's so much like life. You guys are going to learn a lot from judo. Plain and simple. That's that. I think that sums it up perfectly. I mean, I, I try to, you know, articulate this to the students in my dojo now and the families of, of the long-term gratification of, of judo practice. You know, it's not something that you, you have a lot of like success in the beginning years. It's just, it's a lot of hard work, but I think that judo 
it, it closely resembles life more so for kids than than anything else. And that's in my experience. I mean, judo was the only thing that was real for me growing up. You know, and, and I think that you 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 know that's why we were talking earlier. A lot of these really really good judo players they start later a little bit later in their age group. You know, a lot of the judo players today start very young. But I had a late start. I was at 12, and, and if you had 13 and 14, at least you're more mature, a little bit more mature, and understand what the training is all about because it is it is difficult. It is hard uh, for a young child to go through two youngs. I think I mean, it's finding that balance, right? That balance of, you know, if you start too early, you end up with the burnout. Um, and if you start too late, sometimes it's hard to catch up. I think 12 is a good age. We talked about this as well. We had quite a few clinicians that came through San Jose over the last few years. And I was really surprised with how many of them, you know, got later starts in judo and, and ended up with, you know, the highest levels of success at, you know, world and Olympic level. Right. And, and that's what I was saying. I, being matured at least at 12 or 13, you, you understand a little bit more than when you, if you were a five-year-old child or six-year-old child going through all the training and, and, the, and the hurt, it's, it's painful and the losing and you get tired of it. But, but when you're in, in the 12 and on or 13 and on, you, you understand the rewards or understanding what it takes to try to be successful and put in the work. And you, you understand why your sensei puts you through all these exercises and, and it's, it's so frustrating, but it's, 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 it's part of the growth pattern. And I think it's better to start at a later age sometimes. For sure. Um, so Keith, the Keith Nakasone that I know is always been like a very competitive person, you know, just by nature, I can see, and I was not around in your generation when you were fighting, but as a coach, you know, having you Matt side and having you in the dojo, someone there like that, that, um, that inspiration that you're able to exude during practice and that, like that, that desire that you have for competition, is that something that, that you had when you were, when you were younger? Um, I would say yes. You know, in, in all sports, it's, 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 it's fun to win, right? It, it, it just, it, it's what you strive for winning, but you know, it's, it, I don't want to give it the wrong connotation, but it, it gave me the gave me the drive on on what I wanted to accomplish was was trying to win, you know, and so I think that was pretty important. Do you remember how old you are when you when you realized that that you were good at judo? Oh, you know, I I think that was around the age of like uh, fourteen or fifteen years old when we were touring Japan. It, you know, you and I were also talking earlier how how this one throw you don't know you've been practicing but never know it's going to work, and all of a sudden it threw someone. It, it it changed my my whole attitude and of judo because that throw worked, and and I want to see if it would continue to be, you know, positive for me, and it really really was. It's a good addiction, is what it is. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it. But when you get somebody like you know, I talk in the, with the kids about Ashiwaza, for example. Ashiwaza, uh, you know, it seems basic and seems simple, but Ashiwaza is some of the most difficult things in judo that are you know to to perfect. But the first time you throw somebody with a foot sweep that's effortless, like that feeling is tough to replace. It is absolutely. You know, it, it makes a. Then you then you can apply it, like you feel like you can apply it at any time. All the time, you know what I mean, and and that was a, for me. You know, I think as a judo player, you should have a a tokui was a, a stand up good throw and a 
so that when you're competing, so practice that and, and get that love for that technique. And then when you go to the tournaments, you'll see how much that, that reward is. That, that I think, is the part of the, the winning attitude, training through that and perfecting uh, the throw or the pin on an ongoing basis. You've got to do it all the time. So when you're in middle school, you start judo. You, did you start taking trips to Japan immediately? How soon did you start your you know trips to Japan? No, it it it, it really uh, mainly was training in Okinawa for for the you know during the junior high school and high school time. But while I was in junior high school, I was introduced to a judo instructor in Kumamoto, Japan. Um, he's a junior high school judo t- teacher. He brought his team down to Okinawa. We competed. And after the competition, he invited my brother and I to come and train with him in Kumamoto. He liked, he liked what he saw in the two of us. And so that's how the connection started. So you're in Kumamoto, Japan. And I, and I know the story because you and I are friends and we've talked about this a lot. But uh, there's a very famous judoka, um, arguably one of the most famous judoka in our time, uh, that was your teammate. Who is this special judoka? Uh, Yasuhiro. Yamashita. Yes. I would consider him in the top top five great judo players to have competed. Yes. So what do you remember? What can you tell us about Yamashita? You know, those of us that were judo fans, like I was a kid in the 80s growing up, you know, watching videos. So one of the most inspiring things for me as a kid was that I actually went to the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. My judo coach, you know, Ernie Smith had an extra ticket and he's like, hey, do you want to go to the Olympics? Like, what an amazing opportunity for like this, you know, I'm like an eight-year-old kid and he's got this ticket to go watch the Olympic Games. And it just so happened to be on the day of heavyweight where Yamashita went on to be the Olympic gold medalist. So super cool. Um, but what we don't hear is like stories of what, what, was, what was he like as a young boy? I mean, was he already kind of a superstar, like at the middle school age? No, you know, actually, um, when, he, when, when I first met him, he was, I think, in sixth grade, and I was in eighth grade. So, but he was much bigger than me. He was, from what I understand, if you l- listen to the stories behind him, and, and he used to be a bully. Big guy, big right. guy, but not as good in judo yet. Still a little bit young. Okay. Yeah. And so as a 60 kilo, well, you're not even 60 kilos. Oh, in, I wasn't 60 kilos. In eighth grade, you're even smaller. But I, I mean, I, those of you that have trained in Japan, you realize they don't really care so much about weight categories. So you're training with them. doesn't matter how big he is. Yes. Yes. does not matter. Size does not matter. The old philosophy, you know, the Japanese said a good small, uh, a good small judo player can beat a good big judo player regardless you know you you just compete and but he was special he he was you could you could see the the clumsiness because of his size and how big he was at that age but then you could see the throws some of the throws that he did for a guy that size was well balanced so the next time i saw him was i had not seen yamashita for a couple of years later and he was the best high school judo player in Japan. The best. Right. Oh, so now, now untouchable. Yeah, Now I untouchable. Imagine. I know that heavyweights actually have some difficulties because people look at them and expect more because they're big. And that's something as a coach that I look at. Now I see these big kids, you know, some of these kids are just giants. And I look and I say, wait a minute, that kid's just 10 years old. He just has the body of, you know, maybe a full grown man already. So 
with Yamashita being like this heavyweight superstar, but he's still young. I mean, you say high school, he was already amazing. And, and I assume in high school, he's probably already starting to fight adults. Yes, he was. But I forgot to mention one thing. What he, his, what he lacked in, in coordination, and yet, because he's so young, what he was great at was learning, right? Picking up the waza. He was very, very good at that. It was, he was a quick learner. And then you can see that, right? By, like I said, by the time I met up with him again when he was in high school, he was the best high school player, but I would venture to guess the best college player as well, still in high school. Right. He fought the All Japan when he was in high school yet, you know? So just amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see like uh, somebody like Yamashita. I think now he is the president of the Olympic Federation in Japan. So he's kind of done it all when it comes to judo. You know, start off as a all Japan champion, you know, Olympic champion, and he went straight into coaching, you know, like at Tokai University. Went beyond that, became the coach of the national team, uh, and, and he's just kind of done it all. And he's kind of the figurehead and the the face of judo around the world. Probably, you know, arguably one of the most recognizable faces and the figures you know, in our sport, but it's uh, really cool that you got to grow up with somebody like that when you were coming up. Yeah. Wonderful. Really, really wonderful, wonderful guy. At least my brother and I, we got along so well with him. You know, he was, he was, um, nom- not given a, an award as the national treasure of Japan when he was, I think ninth grade. So they had this expectation of this young man of becoming world champion, Olympic champion, and and one of the best judo players, and as well, he was recruited by the Sumo Sumo uh, Federation in Japan. Really? Yes, because he was so good at sumo. They have high school sumo. In, right. And and my understanding was the one of the Okuzuna and his uh, assistant came down to recruit him to do sumo. But this is at already what ninth ninth grade. Right. Yeah. And looking back, you know, like Yamashita is like this figure that has like everyone knows he's built. He's a strong guy. But even for Yamashita, it wasn't easy. I mean, the depth of judo in Japan, because, you know, he had to get through Saito. So it's like, you know, you become this like uh, amazingly good player, heavyweight, and it's still not even easy even to, you know, make teams in Japan. It's no different today. I mean, the the, the field of depth that they have in Japan in every category is, is amazing. But Saito was also a champion on his own. And, and there's a really cool documentary, if you get a chance to look it up, between, you know, the battles of Yamashita and Saito. And it's, it's really cool to watch. Yeah, the one, the one that I was watching was the All Japan Championships. Right. Yeah, that was, that was you know, and, and you could even say that maybe Saito won the last, last match that Yamashita and him fought. Um, so it, it was a fantastic um, uh, co- uh, competition among two, two great judo players. But, you know, I'm, I'm a Yamashita fan, so he won, he won. That's how the call was done. There you go, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, um, so you're traveling back and forth to Japan, and then at some point uh, you end up at San Jose State. So how did you end up at San Jose State? You know, you already talked a little bit about, you know, whether you thought you were good at judo or whether somebody thought you were good at judo, but, but somebody must have said, Hey, look, Keith, you know, like we're, we're going to take this to the next level. So, so I, I just, I got to be brutally honest. Um, the, um, the judo that I, I gained and learned uh, in Japan and Okinawa from uh, Fukushima to Shiraishi and then to Larry Omura in Hawaii. If I didn't go further, 
it probably was an injustice because of the investment people made in me and my, my myself and my brother to become good judo players. So I really did not intend to come to San Jose State. So to 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 get back to your question, I you know I didn't want to do any more judo. With all that investment behind me, I, I just I, I was done with judo. I wanted to get on with my life. I wanted to be able to go to school. So and I got accepted at UH, University of Hawaii. And then a week later, I was in San Jose. My father got on the phone and said, "Hey, you know, your brother and you are both of you are going to San Jose, uh, University of Hawaii. I think that you should go to San Jose. Let your brother stay in Hawaii. So be on the next flight to San Jose." And and that was ex- really the extent of the conversation. My wow. father, my father made me go. So I came out here, and uh, to be honest with you, is the best thing that ever happened to me. Really. So this is you know, hey, a father knows best. You know, there's something that you know. You mentioned you know some things about your father, and uh, you know, what can you tell me about your father? You know, from your childhood that that sticks in your mind as a as a grown man today. Wow, and, you know, I I, I would hope that. Uh, Every son, his hero is his father. I, I, I would hope because he was mine. He was a, a man of few words. Um, I don't, to be honest with you, I never really remember saying my father saying, I love you. But what he did do was he showed us how much he loved. You know, it, words, you know, words could not describe the things that he did for us. And he was a very, to answer your question, he was a very strict man. You know, he's a very honest man, smart, common sense, great common sense, um, and honest, very honest, very straightforward. Uh, I think where, well, at least, well, I'm, I'm not trying to brag or say anything, but when I grew up, I, when I watched my father uh, interface with, with the, his buddies and his friends that were um, from Hawaii, that, that, uh, went to Okinawa to work for the Department of Defense. Um, they respected him. I I noticed that when his friends were around him, how much they respected my father because he was honest. His integrity is very high, and and he was very very disciplined. My brother and I couldn't get out of hand. No, no way. And if we did, we paid the price. You know what I mean? He's a very strict man, but honest, and he loved my brother and I, and, and, but he was, he was tough and sports was not, no different. He, he was tough on us when we did judo, when we did baseball, whatever sport he was tough, but it's hard looking back, you know, like as a parent now, like I have three boys that I'm trying to, you know, provide the best childhood I can. And, and it's hard. Cause you know, sometimes they think that, you know, even as a dad, you kind of want to be their friend, and, and there's a time where you have to draw that line where, you know, I, I remember my own dad telling me like, look, I'm not your friend, I'm your father. And, and there's a difference. You know, there's, there's times that we're friends and, and, and now we're friends, you know, but it, it's different. You know, I'm a grown man now as well, but like there's times where you have to make decisions as a father that, that aren't friendly, they're not nice. And, and there, there are things that, you know, as a father, you, you have a hard time articulating that and getting that across to a kid who just doesn't quite understand that you really have their best interest at hand. Yeah, you said that very well. I, I mean, you know, they aren't your friends. They're your father. They're your parents, and they'll guide you in the right direction. And and whether you like it or not, they know with experience the right and wrong. 
You know what I mean? And they're going to guide you and you may not like it. So when you get to San Jose State, um, you know, you leave Okinawa. What's the team? Could you compare like your club in Okinawa to like what's on the mat at San Jose State as far as like training partners? Is it similar? Do you have more partners in San Jose or what's that transition like? So, so there's, there's more matured bodies. That's the difference. In Okinawa, you know, there's, it's a, it's a, quant- a small dojo with hundreds of kids, right? So it's different. And, and, and when I was a freshman, San Jose State had a great team, just bodies. We were at least five deep, each weight division. And at that time, I think there were five weight divisions. I right. think it was five. But we were like five deep in each, almost each weight division. It was great. We had big guys, small guys, and and bunch of new incoming freshmen, you know, like myself. Yeah, San Jose State, that was even for me the first time that I've been, you know, other than like training camps or an occasional trip to Japan, but like when you come to San Jose State for the first time, when you leave your local club, wherever that local club is, and my local club was probably nothing like your local club in, in Okinawa, but for the first time, um, I get to San Jose State and you have a, a room full of like hungry people and it definitely, it, it, it provides the environment that you need to get to the next level. So, you know, when you say that, that, that actually, like I said, there were more bodies. So for me, it was pretty exciting, right? I mean, I liked the competition. I just think that when I was training, there were the same bodies, same people. You have that at San Jose State, but you have more more of the adult bodies. So that was a, a big benefit for me, you know? And, and then the other thing that helped me at San Jose State was I was very good at Newaza. And most of the kids coming into San Jose State at that time were terrible at Newaza. So, so your coach in Okinawa, Okinawa was this a, a big focus of his was to, you know, I, I know you're famous for your Sankaku. Is this uh, something that you gained in Japan or Okinawa? No, in Japan, in Japan. Um, like I said, in Okinawa, I learned really, a lot of the fundamental from the pins to the throws. I was, uh, Mr. Fukushima was a very, very good judo sensei when it came to setting the foundation of your judo, making sure that everything was correct. So it allowed me to learn, learn quicker. But, but the Sankaku I learned when I was in, in Kumamoto. What you're talking about, like when the, the amount of time, I know that it, it possibly burnt you out as you kind of started to lose interest a little bit, but the amount of time that you put into judo, uh, getting a late start, we talked about like the amount of time it takes, but when you put in five, six, or often seven days a week of judo, the, the, the time it takes to get good is, is shortened significantly in comparison to somebody who's literally going to a local dojo, you know, stateside two days a week. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, the, like I said, the repetition, you do a lot of repetition, everything starts to become instinctive. And so when you're competing, as soon as you get your grip, it becomes sort of instinctive. And if if the other guy isn't doing something to block you off right from the very get go, and that's why you see the gripping in judo today, it's so so technical and so and it, and it takes a lot of strength versus when when we were competing we weren't throwing uh pulling grips away as soon as we got our grip we went in right a lot right? less grip fighting back then. yes yes even even here even in japan okay there's less less grip grip gripping yeah make. funny how they're actually kind of trying to get back to that in some ways where they've kind of reduced a lot of the grip fighting and kind of uh, they, they want people to tie on and, and see who can throw that's that's what judo is all about trying to get that epon it would be so much more exciting 
So when you were, uh, you talked a lot about like um, your love for competition, but not so much for the day-to-day grind. And and we know that the day-to-day grind is what creates good judo players. But so let's talk a little bit about goal setting. So you come to San Jose State, you know, and you admittedly say you didn't necessarily want to be there. So where does the drive come from? Because those of us that know Keith Nakasone, we wouldn't think of Keith Nakasone as somebody who didn't have drive. The Keith Nakasone that people know is the one with this, some sort of drive. There's something that must have been driving you those years. So you come to San Jose State, where, where do you find your motivation? Uh, um, you, you know, like I said, Chuck walked in that dojo, it looked different. You know what I mean? Instead of uh, a bunch of Asian, Japanese, there was a mix, right? From Hispanic to, to black to, to white to Japanese, Chinese, and there, and there were a lot. That, that dojo was packed. It excited me of the, the relishing now, hey, this could be kind of fun to, to see our work. And then, to be honest with you, it, I was so lonely living in San Jose, and I would say it was really only the first six months. I didn't have anybody. I didn't know anybody around here. And judo really was my... My sanctuary, it was my savior. The, I knew the guys, right? And we competed together and we trained together. And, and, and I think that's when um, Coach, Mr. Uchida, noticed me because I was good on Newaza and I did have a Tokuiwaza standing up, right? And a lot of the, the judo that I learned in Japan, I was using it on these guys, you know, Yoko Tomoe, you know, the Uchimata to the. Coach you guys, and I was I was sneaking around these guys, and and they were bigger than I was. It, it, it was fun. It was fun, and I just it was. I got to be honest with you, and they all agree with me. The the Nawaza at at San Jose State, Yosh used to emphasize it, but they weren't very good at it. So when did the change happen? Because what you're saying right now is a lot of your teammates didn't focus on it. It wasn't the focus, and probably that comes from like all the local clubs in the United States where Nawaza maybe is not the focus. By the time I got to San Jose State in the 90s, San Jose State was known as the best place in the country in Nawaza. When well, did this change take place? Well, you know... Maybe it was you. I don't, I, you know, Chuck, I came in 74, and I did. I did a lot of Nawaza. I did. I, I mean, it was, you know, you had your... Like I said, Tokui Newaza was Sankaku. Uh, uh, Tachiwaza was Uchimata. You know what I mean? And so I worked on that. But um, even Dave Long helped it a lot, too. Dave was right. loved the mat. He, he loved the mat. Dave, there was a handful of guys that loved the mat. Uh, AG brought Newaza. But you got to have someone to, to carry that tradition, make sure that that thing is in place. And that was Coach. Yeah, coach would emphasize. Coach always liked Nawaza. He did. Well, at least always since I've been around. And you know, and the funny thing when I, like I said, when I was a freshman, I'm not kidding you. The first semester was all Nawaza, all everything, and I had so much. It was fun. It was fun, you know. So he that was kind of coach's thing, you know. All the times we get there in the fall, and I think it's it's kind of like a safety thing too, because you know a lot of people come in, they probably haven't done a whole lot over the summer, and coach comes in in like late August, early September, whatever it is. We come back to school, and he's like no Tachiwaza till next semester. And in the beginning, I was okay with that. But after a while, I mean, I used to come in, I'm like, coach, you know, I got a, a big tournament. I'm going to Korea and uh, I kind of need to get on the mat and do some Tachiwaza. <laughs> 
So it was hard, yeah, you know. That, but was. that. So that's what I'm saying. When you say the team was not ultra strong, at like in the in the late '70s in Nawaza, things definitely changed. Whether you had that influence on the team, whatever it was, because when Swain and that crew got there in the mid '80s, those guys were all good at Nawaza. They were, you know. And, and and to be, I mean, fair. The guys in the '70s, I don't know, and and they were good Nawaza people. There have been good Nawaza people here, but not in the abundance in which it it eventually came. When I first when I first uh, worked out with Bobby, Bobby was not good on the Nawaza. Right. He turned out to be really strong on Nawaza. Joey Wanag, I don't know if you guys know Joey Wanag, but the guy was a beast. <laughs> I mean, trying to get pin him, he's a beast, right? I, and Swain, I can only imagine. Swain was really good. There was a and and but Nawaza was you know well, if you run it to have a lot of Nawaza, the cream's gonna rise to the top. When you have zero fear of hitting the floor, it makes you more confident to try different things on your feet. Not only that, it makes you want to go down and take the guy down too. Right. Once he goes down, you don't let him up, right? I mean, uh, a win is a win. And Travis, you know, like, let's look at like some more modern times. You know, Travis's Nawaza was like super good. We all know Travis, he was trained at San Jose State. And he uh, admittedly will say, hey, look, there's guys that that are tough to throw. Like, you know, why would I get in a fight with somebody who might possibly be better me in this one situation when I can totally take advantage, where in, in the world of judo, the truth is that there's not a lot of people that really love Nawaza. Now, a lot of the rules are changing and you're starting to see a lot more transition. There's some even, you know, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu kind of sneaking in there and people are starting to train and cross-train, which is awesome. But Travis, you know, became the person that nobody wanted to be on the floor with. And uh, it, it, it saved him a lot of matches. It does. I mean, you, if you're, you're good on the mat, a lot of the good judo players uh, will avoid you like the plague. It's, it's... Every athlete can look back and put a timestamp on the peaks of their careers. In hindsight, it's easy to see when we were at our best. For Keith, his best years were between 1975 and 1980. During this time, he captured four national titles, and he won the Pan American Championships in what was considered a very deep division in 1978. In 1977, the World Judo Championships were scheduled to be held in Barcelona, but when Spain refused to issue visas to the athletes from Taiwan, the IJF made a decision to cancel the tournament altogether. His next chance at a world championship would be in 1979. Unfortunately, he suffered a torn ACL and was unable to participate. The knee injury created a challenge that would have discouraged many. Trying to overcome an ACL replacement surgery going into the Olympic year was the beginning of a huge comeback story that would not have been possible without an amazing amount of courage and determination. This is when your career starts to take off. Like, things start going good. Um, 1978. You make the Pan Am team and, and you win it. 1978. 1978 become the Pan Am champion and this is no like easy division there's like these there's good guys in this division um what can you tell me about how you felt 19 is this where you felt like at the top of your game um really in all honesty Chuck I mean I didn't know anything about the the South American Cuban and Canadian judo players to be honest I I didn't know who they were first and foremost and I I, I mean my my knowledge, judo knowledge of the, the competitors was not very sophisticated. You know, I didn't have anyone tell me that this guy is good. I, I didn't know who they were. And Sometimes it, that's good, right? It is great. I mean, because <laughs> the trip down to, to Argentina was fun. We got there. Um, my whole focus was losing weight. I was way overweight. It, we went down there two weeks before the tournament, and I trained 
specifically to lose weight. And I think that helps me in my competition. I'm not thinking about who I'm competing against. I'm now competing against myself to get to lose the weight. That that just was the focus. And then the tournament itself, um, you fight, you fight who you run into. And then I was told that there were some of them were were very good judo players, the Brazilian, the Cuban, you know, the Canadian. Right. Uh, they were good judo players, but I didn't really know who they were. But in 1978, you win the Pan American Championships, and then uh, 79 comes forward, and it seems you were plagued with injuries. You mentioned, like, uh, I think you sprained your ankle. I think Ed Liddy had a, hit a Connie Basami on you or something, or I don't know what it was, but you had some injuries, and 79 was kind of a mess, and then you ended up with a torn ACL. Yes. Yes. Was that 79 that tore my Because I. Yeah, it was. That's, you know, Chuck, I can't, I don't remember when Ed Liddy heard uh, me. It was in San Francisco. I know it was the Nationals in San Francisco. Um, I got caught with a Kani Basame. Not caught, he just cracked my ankle, was standing up and he cracked my ankle. But and this th- is the year prior to the Olympic trials yes. for the 80 team. Yes, I believe it was. I believe it was. Wow, I didn't even think about it. But, but that injury, and then I also tore my left ACL. Right. How did you did you train? Summer. Did you tear your ACL at practice or at yes, a tournament? At, at practice. practice, right here at practice. I I tore my ACL at practice. Um, didn't think anything wrong. What What was weird was when I had to do the ochigari, I couldn't pull it in. Yeah. It, so ACLs are kind of strange. I tore my ACL, and some people say, oh, "Wow, you must be really tough." No, I'm not tough. Like. I tore my ACL and believe it or not, it didn't hurt. No, it didn't hurt me. It, it, it initially hurt me. It was, it, it, it's a quick pain and then it, it goes away. It was really quick. Uh, and then you heard it again. I heard it again. And that time it hurt, but the pain went away quite fast. So I talked to Mike Swain about this and he said that um, th- this is where the inspiration co- that comes in. Like he says that uh, when he came to San Jose State, he sees you at practice, like with a cast on your leg. True. Very true. It was, let's step back with, I think it was a 78, no, when did I, I take that back. I want to step back a little bit. When I broke my ankle from Ed Liddy, it was earlier, earlier, it must have been in the 77 because I was in a cast, I was in the cast at the 78 Nationals, the um, I'm sorry, 79 nationals, which, which were the, the winners of the Olympic, uh, uh, the top five fighters would represent the U.S. in the Olympic trials. You're in a cast for the torn ACL. Yes, I'm in a cast in a torn ACL in, gosh. Medical technology has changed slightly, too. Yes, I, I was in a cast. They, they don't put people in casts anymore, Keith. No, no, they were. <laughs> I was in a cast. I was in this, uh, well, I had to change the cast to a more flexible cast, but, okay. but I was, it was December. And the the nationals were in March. Okay. Okay. So I'm in a cast the whole time. I was in a cast all the way through. Is it was quite a while. So 1980. I did a little research oh, here because this is uh, before my time. I was born in 1976. So 1980. The research. Everything I do talks about 1980. The Olympics um, was all about the miracle on ice. So. I didn't know this, but the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics back then were actually in the same year, and that didn't change until about 1992. So in the winter time before the Olympics in 1980 was the Winter Olympics, which did take place. There was no boycott of that, and the American ice hockey team goes out and wins the gold medal, which was like 
huge. Right. It was it was huge. So so we had we had hopes of well, we all thought it was still going to happen. We didn't know about Bin Laden fighting the Afghans, fighting the Russians, and then Jimmy Carter deciding to boycott and 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 removing the eighty Olympics. Right? I mean, we were all training. It just all happened. I had, you know, I had torn torn my ACL, went to the nationals, and and uh, Yosh came to me and said, "Hey, Keith, they left one spot open for you. If you want to compete for the Olympics and the Olympic trials, they have one slot open for you. And if you you don't go, then they don't want to take anybody." I said, well, "Why don't you take my brother?" I said, "My brother could fight a good fight." He goes, "He goes, your brother didn't win the tournament." He didn't win the national. So you're taking like an alternate spot because you were injured and you weren't able to compete prior So to I had won all the tournaments, every tournament up until that injury. And then you couldn't fight at the national. And then I couldn't fight at the national because I was in a cast, right? I mean, Meanwhile, you're a four-time national champ. Yes. Three, three-time national? Three-time? Uh, four, four, four. Judo Inside says you're a four-time oh, national yeah, I champ. Think I can't, you know, I'm sorry. I just can't remember. Too many championships. Wow. <laughs> Short period of time, you know. But um, so I said... No, you gotta be kidding. He goes, take my brother. He goes, no, 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 he didn't win. He did not win. So I said, sure, I'm in. So you go to the Olympic trials. This is um, the unfortunate part. For the, I had my timelines off when I was thinking about this. I didn't realize that Jimmy Carter had made his announcement and called the boycott. Yes. And then USA Judo puts on the Olympic trials. No, the Olympic trials were already determined, but the boycott had not been announced. I see. So, just bad timing. It this was. Is, it was bad timing. It was. I know it was before. It was before the Olympic trials. Before the Olympic trials, they announced the boycott. It was still the same five guys that qualified. All five came to fight fight in the tournament. So you go into the Olympic trials, and you're 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 really not at your best. I mean, you're you're coming off a pretty major injury. Like, what's your mindset at this time? I was. I was. Number one, I was really fortunate, right? Fortunate that the injury was on my left leg. Okay. Because you're Uchimata, you depend on your right. Yeah. So you're a left sided Uchimata. Even if it's Ochigari or Kochigari, Osotogari, everything is to the with the the left leg. So to be honest with you, I was very, very fortunate. Um had my knee taped by Jimmy, Jimmy Woolley. Okay. And before the match, and thinking of it, but then it got too tight. It got sore. I said, Jimmy, cut the sucker off. Yeah. I'll just go Start with Start losing leg. circulation. Yeah, I'm just going to fight with my leg. And it was a dangling leg. You know, it really was. And ended up, ended up winning that tournament. But um, like I said, very, very fortunate it was the right leg. Because if it was not, uh, if it was the right leg, no chance. You, you pivot. Yeah. You cannot pivot when you have a torn ACL. You just, you can't pivot. I tore my ACL like just doing recreational, you know, training after I retired. And ACL is a tough injury to to overcome. I mean, the fact that you were able to do that and go into a tournament and win speaks volumes of, of of your mindset and your ability to overcome that injury. Because I mean, it. I think the knee injury is also mental. Because like you start to lose confidence in your ability to pivot on that thing, and it, it plays a big role. It does, you know. But considering the other side of it is, is that it was my last tournament. Is it was the last tournament I was ever going to fight was because I knew we couldn't go to the Olympics. Did you right? know that you were done? I did. For myself, I knew I was done. 
Why is that? What, 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 what was going through your mind at this time? Well, you know, I, I would have loved to compete in L.A., but I, I was fortunate, uh, unlike a lot of kids, a lot of kids. I had a grandparent and uh, two parents that supported me throughout my college career. I was very, very fortunate. I mean, they took care of the trips for me, you know, and put me up at people's places. And I was there for like two, three months, two, two months at a pop sometimes, you know what I mean? Um, I, I couldn't ask them to do more. I mean, when you, it's their life now too. My dad's retired, right? My grandmother, they taking care of my grandmother and my mother. My father was a smart man who knew how to save his money. and and my grandmother was generous enough to to uh, uh, sponsor me and take care of my trips to Japan. I, I just couldn't ask them for another four more years. So I said, and I knew before then, this is it. This is the last. I I missed seventy six. I made a very very big mistake in nineteen seventy six. In my heart, I feel like I didn't I didn't do the right things. Um, my father knows that I didn't do the right things and I didn't uh, train hard enough and I lost. And that, that's haunted me for four years till eight. So from 76 to 80, you have this like, uh, when, when you mention your father, you're, what are you talking about? Like, what is your father? He's not happy with the way you're preparing. Or? Well, in, in 76, he knew I didn't train hard enough. My brother was there. My father would ask questions. How's your brother doing? He's not okay. You know, and my brother, my brother doesn't, and and I love him that he don't hide any punches. If you're not training hard enough and you're not putting in the work, you got, you got to say so. You got to call it what it is. You know what I mean? And 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 when I look at it, he wasn't lying. Right. He's telling the truth. I I thought I was good enough to win the tournament. I would train. I would go run. But it was like it was like nothing. Knowing putting it in a very critical situation, I was casual about it right that that dad dad did not like that at all and so when i asked him if you're going to go down to the 76 trials olympics he said no why would i pay good money to go and see you when i don't think you can win and then i went i'm gonna show you right but he was right he was absolutely right i mean I love my father for that. You know what I mean? To be so honest and direct and, and, and you know what? Most parents today don't say those things to their kids, especially when they're going to a tournament like the Olympic trials and, and telling them straight out, I'm not going up there. Cause yeah, I mean, you know, it takes a, me, uh, uh, a grit and a, and a honesty of a person to, to know my dad's an ex athlete. So he's a boxer, so he knows how to train. You know what I mean? He was, right. so it's not like, so he didn't feel I was training on it. And sure enough, I lost. And then that stood on me for four years. So that's four what years. drove you. But that, I, I think that maybe that had something to do with your success in those four years, you know, between 76 and 80, you were, you know, that, those are the, the best years on record of the tournaments you were winning, super dominant in the United States. Like some of the research that I did showed that, there really was nobody that was kind of at your level in the United States. So you were, you were pretty dominant, like in America and you were at your prime. And then you go to like the 80 Olympic trials and you win the Olympic trials. I fought in a couple of Olympic trials myself. And, and I, 
I understand like the frustration and like the disappointment. You know, I went to two Olympic trials, both of which didn't go the way that I, I would like. And for you, you actually went to the Olympic trials and you won. And and politics, right? Politics kind of takes your dream away. Avery Brundage was the president of the IOC from 1952 to 1972, and he was one of the most prominent administrators of the Olympic Games. He was thought to have contributed more to the modern-day Olympic movement than any other individual. He was quoted saying, The very foundation of the modern Olympic revival will be undermined if individual countries are allowed to restrict participation by reasons of class, creed, or race. Long before he became president of the IOC, he fought diligently to make sure the American team was able to participate at the 1936 Games in Germany. A famous line he wrote in the American Olympic Committee pamphlet said, The games belong to the athletes, not the politicians. You know, after I, after I, I had tore my knee, and this was before the Olympic trials, before the Olympic trials, um, during the operation, my father came up to stay with me and help me out. And um, we were driving in a car one day, and I, I kind of, I broke down in tears. You know, did we? Were, I think, I think we were either going to see the doctor or we had to go something because I was in a cast, and and I broke down in tears, and and. <laughs> my father looked at me and goes, what's wrong with you, boy? What's the matter? And I said, I can't believe that, that they're going to boycott the 80 Olympics. This is what we all work for, the money you spent. And, and I, I was crying. And he goes, God damn it, kid. That's like a pimple on your ass. What are you worried about the Olympic trials, right? The Olympic trials, are, I mean, going to the Olympics. Now the real part begins. It's life. Now you learn the ups and downs of of this, and quit being a baby about this. This is this is life. So you better wake up and start focusing on what you're gonna do. You know, after the trials and and on. He said. He said you got to train. You got to go train for the trials and stop crying about it. You know, it's like I think the older you get, it's a little bit easier to understand that. Like as a young athlete, like it's it's practically impossible. You know, at that age, you know, you were pretty young when you finished your career and you spent all those years. And I know this from personal experience. Like it seems like the end of the world. Like it, that's all you've trained for. This is where you've put all of your efforts. You've thrown all of your eggs into this basket. And for me, like the saving grace for me, like I, I retired from judo in 2008 after losing the Olympic trials. The one thing in life that made a big difference for me is that my son was born about eight days prior to the Olympic trials. All right. Timing was, you know, not the best, but it also gave me a kind of an understanding of like the bigger scope of things in life. You know, I, I, I lost the Olympic trials and I was heartbroken. Don't get me wrong. I was heartbroken for a long time, but I also realized that I had this, I had a son at home and I realized that life was much, much bigger than sport. That's hard. That's hard for athletes of, of all kinds. And, you know, the, the, the subject of like mental health and, and preparing people for life beyond sport is something that's probably not talked enough about. You know, I think your dad, you know, like you said, you know, dad's no best, man. Like the, your dad had a better understanding of life. He's older. He understands like, look, at the end of the day, this is a sport. You know, you didn't reach your goal because you were, you know, it was taken away from you, unfortunately. 
but your dad had the bigger picture was like, look, life moves on. And for me, it was like, it was my son. You know, I, had, I have a new son that, that relies on me. I, I'm a father now. And as much as it like hurt to not make that Olympic team and not get to go to the Olympics, like I realized like, hey, like there's other things in life. Yeah, you know, I, I totally, totally agree with you. It's just at that moment, that, that moment of all, all the effort, everything that's been put in, uh, just didn't make, it just didn't happen for us. You know what I mean? And, and that's just heartache. You know what I mean? That's why I just can't forgive Jimmy Carter for the, the movie he made. And, and my father was upset with me about that because what do you mean? That's your president. Your president of the United States instructing us to do this. What are you arguing, talking bad about that? I said, Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, he understood. He understood a lot more than I did. I mean, the man footed foot my bills, and he felt that way, right? And, and and so, I understand where he's coming from. But I, I, there's not a day that you know that. Well, I will think about it every once in a while. You know, it it just dawns on you that just the opportunity to see where it all takes us. That's what, I mean, that's what I think athletes do, right? I mean, just to, to test themselves. So 1980 happens and there's like this sudden jolt into reality. But to me, this is where the story continues. I think the biggest mistake that any coach could make is to underestimate every interaction that you have with your students along their journey. Before this interview, I actually took some time and, and contacted a few San Jose State alums people that are friends of ours, people that you know well. And the meaningful impact that you've had on their lives is tremendous, even after all of these years. Let's use Portland, Oregon as a good example. Portland, Oregon, between the Obukan Judo Club and Portland Judo, they both have senseis that are San Jose State alums, both of which that you've had some lasting impact on their judo careers. I'm going to play a few small clips for you. Um, This here's going to be your friend Rod Condoregas of Obukan Judo, and Andy Hung, who started Dojo Outfitters and is now a sensei at Portland Judo. Keith Nakasone is somebody that I always looked up to uh, coming from Hawaii with Keith, uh, coming from my home Judo Dojo of Libra Judo Dojo. You know, his name was always around. And uh, I remember actually I was a kid and him and his brother actually came to Libra Judo. And, um, you know, at that time, I didn't know that I would see him again when I attended San Jose State University. By the time I got to San Jose State University, uh, Keith Nakasone was already a legend. Um, he would come up to practices and shout out coaching tips. And I still have a pretty good Keith Nakasone impression. I'm not going to do it here. But he had a very distinct voice that you could definitely pick out uh, during the sounds of the, the dojo. And um, man, I think, you know, I, from my perspective, I think we always had a special relationship because coming from Hawaii, um, you know, just having that local spirit, that local boy atmosphere. And he would always talk to us and give us good advice. And, you know, he would tell us that even a blind pig finds an acorn every now and then. Uh, whenever I would accidentally throw somebody, you know, it's just kind of good to have that cheerleader voice um, just coming from a San Jose State legend. So, yeah, I feel like, you know, if I could say one thing to Keith, I just want to say that I appreciate you being in my judo journey. Um, I appreciate hearing your voice on the sideline. Me and my brother, Louis, we still do our Nakasone impression. And um, man, he was just an influential person in my judo career. And I, I don't think I would be where I'm at if it wasn't for people like him pioneering the way. So I just want to say, Keith, man, big mahalo. Aloha to you. And uh, Chuck, hey, I appreciate the opportunity, man. Thank you. 
Keith actually is the reason why I came to San Jose State Judo in 1979. He's the best coach, motivator, leader that I've known in my 48 years of Judo, not to mention a great person. He's one of the few that walks the talk. Many people talk the talk. Keith walks every step of the way. I will never forget how he pushed himself for the 1980 Olympics. He blew his knee out and had major surgery. Most people are like out for 69 months waiting for the cast to come off. Back then, they tore your whole knee apart, sewed it together like a zipper, and then put a cast around it. Keith didn't stay off the mat. He came to practice every day, got down on one knee and kicked his hurt leg up in the air for Uchimata. That's a leg that was in a cast. Every day he was at practice in a cast, on his knees. It was like a few days before the Olympic trials and his cast came off. He goes to the Olympic trial and wins the 60 kilogram slot. Come on, no human that I know has grit like that. Another example is the 1979 San Francisco Senior Nationals. Keith breaks his ankle during the competition. No one knows. He goes to the finals with a broken ankle and fights Ed Liddy. Ed Liddy, who happens to be the 1984 bronze medalist and a great competitor, of course. Keith wins with a broken ankle. Come on, who does that? Keith Akasoni does. No one trained harder, was more focused, more deliberate, and sustained a judo spirit like Keith did on the mat. Once he bowed on the mat, Keith was all in. I have to say, back in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, every Olympic athlete that came out of the Santa State Judo program has been influenced by Keith. He really is a spark that lit the fuse for so many, many local, regional, international, Olympic, and world team members and champions. All of these people came out of San Jose State with a little bit of Keith Nakasone's spark inside of them. Many, many people are champions both on and off the mat because of Keith. And those individuals today are giving back on the judo mat to others because of Keith Nakasone. I'm just one of the many and very grateful to Keith. Thanks Chuck again for the opportunity and Keith rocks. The 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow were 40 years ago, but your inspiration is still prevalent today. I mean, your energy and your passion for judo is contagious, and you've always had this ability to get the best out of people. Yeah, you're too kind. I'm telling you, those people are too kind, you know, but, but I think as, as, a, as a coach, that, that is your, the, your burden. It is your burden. If, if you truly love to teach kids, then, then you have to draw as much as possible from them and help them succeed, right? It's, it is your role to inspire, to motivate, to dedicate, to be disciplined. That's, that's a coach's role. I mean, you, you look. You just look at the history of all the great coaches. I I believe, in their own way, they have a way of motivating, right? And and how do you take the lessons of judo and, and kind of relate them to life and how how you how you pursue things? One of the great things to me about judo is it's one on one. It's not like a team. It's like wrestling. You know, it's like wrestling to me is a incredible sport. And in the shape you're going to be in, but judo's the same way. It's one on one. No one really is not going to help you to get through those five minutes. No one's going to help you. No one's going to help you win. You got to do it on your own. 
Oh, yeah, you have friends on the side that help you every once in a while if you need help while you're working or, or living. But that's what you have coaches for. They do the same thing, but they can't win the match for you. You got to go and win it. That's what life's all about. I think every kid wants to be taken to the brink. They may not, they may not uh, say it or they may not really feel it, but, but when you start taking them there, they get a little bit more angrier. They get a little bit more, they give a little bit more um, cockiness that they're going to prove you wrong and they're going to try harder. I think that taking them to, to that edge every once in a while is good for the kid. Really, in, in short, my style of inspiring coaching is, is for the true love of the sport because we owe the sport the very most. And, and it's our obligation as coaches to develop the best individual we can within our sport, right? Um, not just in judo, but in, in, in the community. But it's to inspire and, and take them to another level, you know? There's, there's nothing like watching a, a kid win the nationals you know a tough tournament oh it, it brings you it brings you to tears keith this is uh this has been a lot of fun man i i really appreciate you coming out here to share your story and you know now that things are slowing down for you and you're about to retire i really hope that you can get back to the mat because i think that that's where you're best i think that um, you've had a great career in silicon valley but I think that your passion still lies on the tatamis. And I think that you have a, a, a big impact that you still have to make on the judo world. Well, thank you very much, Chuck. I, I enjoyed this evening. Um, you know, if, if and when I decide to get on the mat, you know, the sooner the better. But they won't recognize me because I, I look like the Pillsbury Doughboy. And they go, that guy's <laughs> never done judo before. Whatever he tells you is not the truth. But We'll get that picture but, of that Uchimata straight <laughs> up in the air. But thank you very much, Chuck. I enjoyed it very much. All right, Keith. Thank All you right. for coming out. Right on. Thank you for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit JudoCast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.